So just be conscious of of kind of like keeping the hands off the microphone and should yeah, be good. Off. It's good. it's sensitive, you know. So it's like corals. <laughs> <laughs> it's like coral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I relate then. <laughs> Have you ever listened to this show and heard us about shipping bourbon a time or two? Oh, of course you have. Heck, I know I sound like a broken record as we try to become more stewards for reform in this space. And I think we talk about it almost every single week. But this time, you get to hear it from an expert. Alex Coral, he's the Regulatory General Counsel for Ship Compliant by Sovos. They're a pioneer in the space of alcohol beverage delivery and making sure companies stay compliant since every state is different. But we ask him, why do wine companies and wineries get a lot more slack than spirits when it comes to shipping? And what's keeping that back? But we also get his opinion on the Supreme Court rulings of the past few years as it relates to the Commerce Clause and why change is so reluctant and slow. And as you can guess, there is a lot of red tape and lobbyists involved. But the good news is, is that we are seeing incremental positive change. And Alex gives us a few tips on what we can all do to make that change happen at our local level with that enjoy this week's episode and now here's fred minnick with above the char i'm fred minnick and this is above the char this week's idea comes from leo biette i hope i said that right leo writes how long in ideal conditions would a bourbon last in the following poured from a bottle that has been opened for one year okay into a two ounce amber glass sample bottles with a matching correctly sized plastic screw cap heat sealed with shrink wrap and stored in a cool dark space all right leo i I need to know what's going on here i mean i feel like there's a bigger story at play here leo that you're that you're not sharing so (laughs) overall the when you are storing in smaller vials there are two things that you need to look for obviously making sure it's in a cool you know 60 to 75 degree area with no light but the other thing is, is that these plastic uh, containers, sometimes there will be a, a wax film inside the cap, like it'll be like a, like a little wax piece of paper. Those can actually have a really negative impact on the whiskey. So you want to make sure it's plastic on plastic. You don't want to see any, any kind of foreign glues, any kind of uh, wax material inside that cap, because that will definitely leach into the whiskey. In fact, if you find like old airplane bottles from the 50s and 60s and you taste them, they will often taste like heated plastic because of that little material that's inside the cap. In addition, this is something that I do. Like when I do like my tastings, I have an archive of smaller samples. And so, yeah, this is very common. Whiskey Advocate, we did it there as well. So, you know, I think if you're if you're doing it for like historical purposes or to kind of keep a memory in a bottle... That's fun, but thanks for writing, Leo. If you would like to be like Leo, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button and let me know your idea. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long.
And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Maybe today it's the official shipping podcast of bourbon because this is something that I'm interested to talk about because Ryan and I, essentially, we started our own brand and our own business thinking that we're going to be online only. We're going to be shipped direct to consumer, cut out the middleman, and we're just going to go and be a digital first kind of company. Well, we kind of had to backtrack a little bit, but today we're going to have somebody on the show that will give us the ins and outs of everything when it comes to being compliant, when it comes to shipping and what all these new rules and what are the meanings of them. Yeah, we kind of put the car before the horse, expecting to be in online shipping, direct to consumer when only like eight states, <laughs> we could ship to eight states from Kentucky or something at the time. But yeah, it's it's an exciting space. It's changing. You know, it's a fluid, you know, changing situation all the time. It's a, you know, alcohol is one of those just complex situations that differs by state to state laws. And it's just a complex world that, you know, and as us as spirits enthusiasts, whiskey geeks, we want access to, you know, a lot of things that we can't necessarily get with the existing system. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to learn more about it because, you know, we're emotional about it. So I'd, I'd like to talk to someone about that, you know, deals with it and can logistically, realistically set expectations and what we can achieve with direct to consumer. Cause a lot of brands are spending a ton of money, you know, trying to build the infrastructure and the systems processes to kind of leverage this new model. So, uh, yeah, I'm blabbing, but let's get our guest on. He'll, he'll fill let's us in. Let's do that. Let's <laughs> do that. So today on the show, we have Alex Coral. He is the regulatory general counsel for ship compliant by Sovo. So Alex, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. See, it sounds like you have a radio voice anyway. This is gonna be perfect. <laughs> yeah. I was told I should get into that in high school and I guess, Thankfully for you, I guess, maybe I didn't be a competitor instead of a, a helpful guest. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk we need about- you on the, We need you on the front lines of direct consumer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, that's where the hard fights are fought. Yeah, that's right. Get your, get your battle shields ready here. You're going to war. I kind of want to talk about you a little bit before we start talking about Sovos and everything like that. So kind of give a background about you and how- I, I know you went to law school at University of Colorado. So kind of talk about your background and- and how you felt like getting into this world of spirit shipping. Yeah. So as you say, I am currently regulatory general counsel for Sovo Ship Compliant, which, as you say, means I am a lawyer, but I always have to say I'm not one of those lawyers. I am really just a, a research attorney. I you know, read the laws, study them, talk to other attorneys about what they mean, and then try to apply them to a real-world context in this situation, software support for beverage alcohol shipping and regulatory support for all your sort of interstate shipping and, and, and distribution needs. And, you know, frankly, it, it was, you know, this is kind of the, the deep secret of a lot of lawyers is that we go to school and learn very, very general things. We, you know, learn what a contract is, but not necessarily how to write contracts you have to get a job to learn all those specifics. So I just happened to fall into beverage alcohol regulation. And, you know, lucky me that it was this and not, say, insurance law. <laughs> you know, after all these years, just built up expertise. Again, really focusing on trying to demystify some of the complex rules out there. And it makes it a lot more accessible both for lay consumers like us or also, you know, producers, retailers everybody who's actually involved in this so that they can understand the rules and and comply with them as they exist. Because, you know, as it turns out, this is a lot more complicated inside the realm of beverage alcohol than, than outside. There's a lot of things that we are aware of when it comes to beverage alcohol regulations. You know, don't sell to anybody under 21. Maybe you're aware people need to have a license, but there's all sorts of rules that go on top of it that that are really unseen if you're just going to a, a restaurant or a bar to enjoy a glass of bourbon every now and again. 
Yeah. And so this is, I think it's a, a good way to kind of interject here that a lot of this stuff really came about because of prohibition. Everything was left to the states. Everybody was individually left to figure out what laws work for them. But the three-tier system was implemented this time as well, correct? Yes and no. You know, again, this is this is part of the very interesting history and and everything that's ongoing about this is there is kind of a sense out there that everything happened in 18th in 1935, excuse me, and we're just dealing with that sense. But there really has been a lot of innovation and and changes over the the several decades. So in the 30s, coming out of prohibition, there was this real interest in how do we create a healthy and safe alcohol market that doesn't recreate the evils or at least perceived evils that were existing before prohibition. And how we move forward with that. And 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 part of the recommendations that came out of it was this book called Towards Liquor Control, who was a, a little pamphlet brought up by John D. Rockefeller Jr. of how do we create a new alcohol market? And one of the recommendations they had was we need to divide the different layers of the alcohol market. So you would have your producers, you would have your retailers, and we need to have this in-between folks who would have the high-minded health and safety of the public on mind. And so they would protect us from you know demon bourbon and demon rum, as it were. And originally, they really wanted this to be state agencies. So the control markets that you see in states like Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, those were what the these original proponents much more wanted than our area of lots and lots of, of independent distributors. And then over the years, there have been a lot of changes to further advance the three-tier system as it were. So again, we start out with this separation between who can sell and who they can sell to and how does it get to consumers in the 50s. And you, you have a lot more development of, again, forcing these sort of sales, making this this the, the strict rules of the land. In the 60s and 70s, you have the development of a lot of what are called franchise rules, which are really when you are a producer and you get stuck into your distribution contract. Originally, they were designed to protect small distributors from Budweiser and, and Coors and Miller so that they couldn't be pushed around by big producers. But you know things have really flopped in the industry since the 70s. Back then, it was a few very, very large producers dealing to thousands of small distributors selling to tens of thousands of retailers. And today, we, we kind of see the opposite of that, where there are tens of thousands of small craft producers between beer, wine, and spirits selling to a handful of extremely large distributors who really kind of control that market and, and act as, in some ways, a barrier. But you know, I, I don't want to, to denigrate distributors that much. They, they really play a very vital role. And I think that everybody who does want to be distributing on a large scale needs their help, needs their logistic services. I, I just kind of wonder if they need the guarantees of legal backing that they have now. And so it's, it's a little bit of a uh, an evolution of, of the alcohol laws over the last you know, almost century at this point. And so I, you know, I think that there are people who say that, well, this is the system that happened in, in 1930, in 1935, so therefore it's legitimate, we need to keep it going. But uh, that's really kind of a misnomer because things have constantly evolved and constantly adapted to change. And really what we're dealing with is the last 40 years of the craft industry, of enabling small producers to create local excellent products that maybe they don't distribute nationally, maybe they don't have millions of barrels going around. And how do you support those industries? How do you support those businesses, get their products to consumers? Because you know, at the end of the day, it's really the consumers that need to be be furnished here and, and get that access to the, the wide variety of products that exist. So I got a question. So what still currently works are the positive sides of the current three-tier system model? What is working in it, I guess, that we should keep? <laughs> I think, again, the, the real dictates of the alcohol regulation is to protect the health and safety of consumers. And so I think to a certain extent, the raft of, of licensing, making sure that who, you, who is producing is, is producing a legitimate product, you know, 
God forbid anybody ever produces anything with with methylene and sells it out there. Heaven forbid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there, there are, you know, at least as long as we have those basic barriers of making sure that who is producing bourbon, who's producing alcohol out there is doing it properly and doing it safe. That, that's, I think, very, very key out there. But that doesn't necessarily mean we need to have these strict limits on who can sell at what time to whom. And I think that that if you look at other industries, they have distributors as well. There are middlemen in socks and books and everything out there. So it's not to say that getting rid of the you know three-tier system, the laws around the three-tier system mean distributors would go away. As I say, they really do provide uh, all this logistic support, the the trucks, the the services, the the sales to local retailers that a small producer in a different state may not have access to. Again, I just don't know if they need to have the law behind saying you need to use these services if there are alternatives. Because this then really does stymie a lot of advancements, especially in this internet age where you might have a business that wants to produce in Kentucky and sell locally online only across the country. They can't because these laws are out there that it stop them. And there's no real legitimate way that I see to to prevent that. A lot of it is just kind of rent-seeking, frankly, and, and trying to not allow new competitors into their business. So I think that there are, this is a moment to reflect on the values of alcohol regulation, what we really want to get out of it, and how do we then move forward and in, into a modern economy as opposed to just, again, trying to think that it's 1935 forever. You make some really valid points there. I think the, the one thing that I always challenge is like the safety aspect because they always want to say, oh yeah, we want to make sure there's no bad products come out to market. We distribute stuff. I don't think I've ever had a distributor say, oh, can we go take this to a lab and test it just to make sure that your bourbon meets some sort of regulation or standard or anything? Now, they prove the value in the logistics side, as you said, being able to get it out to market, having basically becoming your sales force at that point and being able to put it on the store shelves and and kind of having a quick turnaround to get that cash flow happening too. So they, they definitely play a, a role in this. And you know, before we get too far, I also kind of want to bring it back just a little bit to kind of also talk about what you uh, and what Sovos does and Ship Compliant does too as well, just to kind of make people aware of, of this sort of product and brand that's out there as well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. No, I, I absolutely agree. There are a lot of bad faith arguments out there in you know, why distributors have to have this this force of law behind them. But you know, we, we can talk about that a little bit later, uh, and I appreciate the plug. So yeah, this is really what we are doing at Sovo Ship Compliant is trying to demystify and provide this compliance support for the alcohol industry. We started as a small startup out in Colorado uh, about 15, almost 20 years ago at this point, really focused on direct-to-consumer shipping of, of wine. And it was really focused on the wine market because that was where the attention was at the time. And at the, that situation, there were a couple dozen, few, three dozen states that that allowed direct-to-consumer shipping, which is really the, the act of putting wine into a brown box, giving it to a third-party carrier, and then having that shipped across the country just to distinguish it from, say, a local retailer doing delivery in their own car or going to a, t a tasting room to just pick up an order. It's as a specialty type of fulfillment where you're dealing with a common carrier. And at the time, there were a bunch of what were called reciprocity rules. And it were basically agreements between states that we will allow your wineries to ship to our residents if you allow our wineries to ship to your residents. And you know, if you were a winery in California, you could ship to 30 states. If you were a winery in Texas, you could only ship to 20. And it was this really confusing mishmash of who can do what where. And the idea was that, well, you know, software can solve that. Software can, in a moment, have this built-in understanding of what the rules are and to identify what is a legitimate sale going to where. Thankfully, the rules did clear up a, at least a little bit since then. There was this uh, 2005 Supreme Court decision, Granholm versus Heald, that basically said if a state is going to allow local direct-to-consumer shipping, they have to allow national direct-to-consumer shipping. They cannot discriminate against out-of-state interests if they allow local shipping to happen. And because a lot of states want to support their local, at the time, wine market mostly, they agreed to allow national shipping as well. And so that got rid of a lot of these reciprocity rules of, you know, 
You can only ship to these 15 states if you're in, in Colorado, et cetera. And we have a much broader understanding of who can ship what where. But there are still a lot of rules involved with that, from getting licensed to making sure that the, the consumer is of age to purchase. A lot of states have limits on how much a licensee can ship to an individual. Often it's one case per month or 12 cases per year. And then taxes are a huge part of this because states are very, very jealous of their, their tax revenue they get. They get hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue each year from alcohol taxes. And so they want to make sure they still get that. And, and so that's really support that we, we or started providing was these compliance checks on orders making sure that the wineries understand the rules out there and that they are paying all their taxes, both sales tax and excise taxes. Over the years, we've expanded to providing broader three-tier distribution support. So again, dealing with a lot of interstate selling, but managing your, your relationships with distributors. Again, managing reporting, managing product registrations, both at the federal and state levels. And in the last couple of years, we've branched out and started supporting direct-to-consumers shipping compliance support for beer and spirits as well. It's always kind of been something we wanted to get into, but it was always not quite as available as it was for wine. And we've, we've seen really the last few years, frankly, a lot because of the COVID emergency is a lot more interest by brewers, a lot more interest by, by distillers and consumers of, of beer and spirits to get these access. And so we wanted to be there ready to understand the rules. And, and frankly, it's been a lot of telling people that unfortunately their dreams of a national shipping program aren't quite possible, at, le at least not yet. So we've started talking then about how do we change these rules? How do we expand this as well? Although we're not necessarily directly involved in, in lobbying or legislation. Uh, it, it's always been an important part of our business to educate the industry, educate consumers so they can understand and, and make action on their own. Why did wineries get a pass or why why do people it's just from they think it's safer than spirits or beer? Or that's, that's part of it. You know, this is, again, going back to even pre-prohibition understanding is that, you know, beer is for the masses, wine is for the rich, and it's spirits that we really need to be protected from. And so there is a lot of bias there and, and, and support. But honestly, a lot of it is more market forces. You know, 20 years ago, well, wine has taken a lot of interest in this really since the 70s. And a part of that is because it's so concentrated. There's so many wineries just in California, Oregon, Washington. So if you're a consumer in New York, Florida, Texas, there are great wines made all across the country. But if you really want like that 100-point wine made in Napa, you would have to go to the Napa location to get that. And, and often, you know, these wines sell for over $100 a bottle. They're not sold in your local retail store. So the only way to get it was to go through the black market and get your friend to ship it to you. And so there was a lot of interest in legitimizing those types of shipments. Sounds familiar. And a lot of interest in expanding. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of happening today in bourbon already. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, that's really, I think that that bourbon is really, you know, about 20 years behind where wine was, is that there's now this explosion in, in the interest, a clear desire to expand this. And that's why I think this really seems like the moment to, to get into it and, and make sure that, we establish this market as you know manageable and and both supporting public health and safety, but then making it uh, available for distilleries to actually handle this and actually move forward. So I got a question about wineries, just real quick. So, what percentage of uh, direct to consumer shipping does a like a winery do? Percentage of sales, you know, versus their whole. Yeah, it, it really depends. Uh, we, we publish a annual report on wine shipping. Uh, and so if you're interested, this is a freely available report on our website. We just published the, the 2021 version, 2021 data at least. And, and it really, this shows that there's a lot of variety. Wineries really exist on the gamut of size. I'm sure just like, like distilleries as well. There are a lot out there that produce maybe under 1,000 or 5,000 cases per year. And then there are a few that produce over 500,000 cases per year, millions of cases per year. And those very, very large ones, those are the wineries that frankly can get a lot of distributor attention. They don't find it hard to get into stores, into restaurants. 
And so they might have a much more mixed approach to direct-to-consumer shipping, although we have seen them really get into it a lot more in the last few years. When you're looking at those very small wineries, though, the ones that do struggle to get distributor attention, that have very small, limited releases, they can rely on direct-to-consumer shipping for the large majority of their sales, even if if not all of it these days. And a large part of that is because they have access to 47 states to ship into. So they have the opportunity to you know connect to consumers all across there. And, and so I think when we're looking at other industries, if there is a small bourbon distillery out there only producing a couple thousand cases per year, very limited specialty production that might go high uh, for a high dollar amount per bottle. That's really where I think we would see a lot of benefit from expanding direct consumer shipping. You know, frankly, Jack Daniels doesn't really need direct consumer shipping to to grow and prosper. It's all those other small distilleries out there that really require this, and I think that's where, uh, again, the market we want to be able to support and provide. I think Ryan can probably be a, a testament to it, knowing that going to Napa or something like that, signing up for wine clubs, all of a sudden, by the time you leave after a trip, you're signed up for four or five of them, and then you've got shipments coming to your door every week for the next month. For years, I still have stuff showing up. <laughs> oh, it can be dangerous to your bank account, definitely. Yeah. But it is awesome, because like you said, those wine, you know, those small family-owned wineries are not distributed you know, anywhere close to me, and so it's, you know, I get to stay in touch with the brand and get their great products, you know, shipped to me. It just, yeah, it seems like wine's at an unfair competitive advantage against spirits right now, you know, where they can leverage this business model. Yeah, they just have, you know, time on their sides. And, and again, they're very concentrated. So there's an organization out there, Wine Institute, which is the, the organization for California wineries. And they've been really leading the charge on this. And because they have such you know, committed membership and focused drive, they can really push legislation across the country. We definitely see this, not troubles with this or, or anything, but there's not that kind of, of singular voice necessarily in other industry groups to lead the charge. I know that a lot of distilling spirits organizations are very interested in direct consumer shipping, but they don't necessarily have the one organization that can sort of lead this for everybody. So so really what we need is to get all the local guilds, all the local organizations to band together and and demand local change cuz you know honestly a state is not going to care about a a Kentucky distillery. Texas isn't going to care about Kentucky distilleries. They're going to care about Texas distilleries. And so as long as you can get that mutual approach going, having all the states move together at once and and support that local legislative change, I think this is really where we can can drive the market and try to expand options. Yeah, I know like the Kentucky Distillers Association, they've they've made try to make a lot of changes in regards of making sure that everybody has a fair shot. And I think they're really capitalizing on what can happen for the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, kind of also trying to pick up to that sort of like that napification or into that same kind of experience where people can come, go through the trail, find something, join a club, a bourbon club, and kind of have stuff shipped to them. But it's just not there at the same, the same time. Now, do you look at some of like the biggest inhibitors right now? Because we see that wine has a lot of that value to it. We know that I've seen in different kinds of legislation that distributors are pushing against this. And even the wine industry is pushing against this at, at time to time as well, because they necessarily don't want spirits to have the same exact rules and regulations that that wine's having. Yeah, I I think I want to be a little bit more more generous to the wine industry, maybe just because I have a lot more uh, I deal with a lot of those people, so I hear their concerns. I think that their fear is much more that opening up the rules might invite changes to their own. They're not necessarily fearing the competition of spirits, although that it always is in the background of somebody taking a little bit of share. I think it's much more they don't want to lose their own market out there if, you know, again, a, a direct consumer shipping bill opens up and then suddenly distributors say that that wine needs to be restricted as well. But I, I agree, they're, they're not going to push any spirits laws. That's going to have to come from the spirits industry itself. And it really does come down to combating a lot of those claims and you know spurious claims, in my opinion, that opponents of direct-to-consumer shipping bring out there, that it expands access to for, for minors, which you know is definitely a concern out there. I think everybody involved in the alcohol industry should be aware of and, and trying to prevent sales to minors. I think that we should be 
skeptical that direct consumer shipping is especially prone to sales to minors as opposed to any other avenue out there. There are a lot of ways we can protect that, verify ages, use carriers to make sure that it's not actually delivered to minors, those sort of, of fixes out there that have really largely worked for the wine industry. Uh, basically, the only time you hear about a, a minor getting a direct consumer shipping of wine is from a sting operation, not from a normal sale of, of direct consumer shipping wine. And so I think just creating realism there, there's a lot of fears that uh, direct consumer shippers won't pay taxes, which is completely, I mean, that's against our basic business model right there, is, is we have, through our system, we've facilitated hundreds of millions of dollars over the years going to states from direct consumer shipping, taxes that they would not have received if these rules had not been in place. So I think it's it's extremely illegitimate to say that, oh, you know, if it's an online sale, nobody's going to be paying taxes. That completely contradicts our entire business model. And frankly, there's a big claim out there that expanding direct consumer shipping will expand counterfeit products, which just seems really crazy to me that if I'm worried about, you know, going onto eBay and getting counterfeit bourbon, that I would go to the actual distillery itself that they would sell me a counterfeit product. It seems like that is actually helping the the counterfeit argument is is to get it directly from the source. So I think there are there are a lot of fears out there, but it's a matter of both, I think, recognizing the legitimate ones and saying how do we work through those? And then how do we argue against the illegitimate ones and make sure that a legislator, a, a state representative or senator who may not be very expert in these issues doesn't get swayed by a distributor or a lobbyist who, you know, is spending millions of dollars a year to to lobby those efforts and kind of combat this market is, is how do we move forward? And and frankly, the wine industry really has a lot of lessons learned from that, how they have gone through state by state and expanded, how they've worked with state legislatures. I think that the the spirits industry can really learn from that and and how do we move forward? Not by necessarily saying that wine is the enemy, but you know, how can they be a partner perhaps? You could say it's a proof of concept, you know, like look at, you know, what winery's done, how much revenue it's produced for each state, you know, mm -hmm. additional to what you're already experiencing. Like how can we leverage this, you know, model to to make it a win-win for everyone, you know? Yeah, exactly. There's there's a bill currently in front of the California legislature right now to enable direct consumer shipping for spirits into California. And I think that a lot of the argument there. So far, the bill is is doing fairly well. It's always too, before it's actually signed, it's always too early to say whether a bill is doing well. But it seems to be moving along. And I think a lot of that is from the experience of the wine industry and in showing how much benefit the California wine industry has gotten from direct consumer shipping permissions. Why not extend that to the, dis the distillers as well and, and other business lines so that they can have some of that that benefit as well, you know, especially in a time when so many small businesses might be struggling. Do you find it interesting? Like, it seems like the conservative states who are typically like more free market, let the, you know, the market dictate the process, but they're kind of the ones that like are clinging on to this old model. It's weird how, you know, it's, I take a look at like Texas or Tennessee, you know, who has grown, you know, through less COVID restrictions, more free market, less taxes, and but yet they're like kind of like refusing this side of it. You know, it's just, I don't know, kind of contradiction. Yeah. I, I, yeah I how much of this is political versus, I don't know, like everything's political, Ryan. Well, I know what everything is. But. <laughs> everything's political. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to, you know, necessarily uh, reveal my, my political stripes too much either, but I'm always a little bit surprised at how many conservative states expound on the free market and then really lean into moralism as well. And, and you know, heavy handed government when it comes to stopping people from having fun. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, like that. I like that. They put the no in the, in the, the party there. <laughs> so you, you also brought up a good point as well when you talked about the taxes side of things and, and making sure that states are able to collect those taxes. I know that one of the big ones that have been very vocal about restricting direct to consumer is Michigan. And when you think about Michigan, you think about Arkansas, you think about some of these states that have been very vocal that don't want any shipments coming in. Is it just because they don't understand it? Are they getting lobbied too hard? Because there are, I think what the last report that came out in 2017, 2019, there's 300 something lobbyists that work for the alcohol industry in, in Washington. So 
there's no shortage of people that are there trying to influence the decisions that mean well for them. But when we think about a state level like that, where they're just saying like, no, we're not going to allow anything coming in. It's only through a distributor. Like what's, what's the mentality you think that goes through the people that are in charge like that? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. So you also brought up a good point as well when you talked about the taxes side of things and and making sure that states are able to collect those taxes. I know that one of the big ones that have been very vocal about restricting direct-to-consumer is Michigan. And when you think about Michigan, you think about Arkansas, you think about some of these states that have been very vocal that don't want any shipments coming in. Is it just because they don't understand it? Are they getting lobbied too hard? Because there are, I think what the last report that came out in 2017, 2019, there's 300 something lobbyists that work for the alcohol industry in in Washington. So there's no shortage of people that are there trying to influence the decisions that mean well for them. But when we think about a state level like that, where they're just saying like, no, we're not going to allow anything coming in. It's only through a distributor. Like what's, what's the mentality you think that goes through the people that are in charge like that? Yeah, I think that that honestly, they're not thinking about it all that much. You know, if you think of a normal state legislature, they're dealing with everything going on in the state from, you know, taxes, alcohol reform, gun control, just keeping up streets and, and education, all sorts of basic things. And, and so when somebody comes across with a bill to expand direct to consumer shipping, they might not have really any idea what's about. Often, I think that they're even surprised that they can't do direct to consumer shipping. It's, I've heard some anecdotes over years where it's they've gotten like oh, the wine industry has been able to pass a bill because it turns out that the state legislature, the the speaker of the house or something, wants to get wine shipped to their house and didn't realize they couldn't, and so they fast track that. And and so I think that that when if you're in that situation, you really do have to rely on what information is is provided to you and and what you're hearing and it's surprising but the alcohol industry is one of the largest lobbying uh industries in basically every state and the majority of that lobbying money is coming from distributors who for various reasons do see direct consumer shipping as something to oppose and and so the state legislature does hear a lot about the evils of direct consumer shipping how a lot of 16 year olds that's how they're going to get their their spirits how you know this just means that that budweiser is going to shut down operations in their state and not pay taxes anymore and and again this is this is the other side that the spirits industry distillers consumers really need to engage in is opposing lobbying efforts. And that doesn't necessarily mean spending millions of dollars to have a person sitting in the actual lobby outside of all these uh, legislators' office. 
It means writing campaigns, educating the, the legislatures about how direct consumer shipping actually works. What are the measures in place that can keep it healthy and safe? How much tax revenue they can actually receive? How these systems really do work? How they've worked for wine, and so they might as well work for, for spirits as well. And frankly, a lot of this really does come down to local grassroots efforts. Again, looking back at the wine industry, there is an organization called Free the Grapes, which is uh, essentially a grassroots organization. They are trying to get consumers from across the country to write into their legislatures and say, you may not realize, but this is illegal. This is something that we want, and this is something that there is a path forward for. And I think that that could really spur a lot of change for the spirits industry as well. If you get your consumers in Michigan to write in and express their dissatisfaction with the current rules and basically just have an opposing voice to the other lobbyists who are out there saying that there are all these apparent evils with direct consumer shipping and why it shouldn't happen is you, you need to have somebody pushing against that. And squeaky wheel gets the grease like my dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it's also is very much the local one. It's, you know, the legislature is worried about getting reelected. And so a Kentucky distillery goes into Michigan. They're going to if they're even going to give you the time of day, they're just going to roll their eyes at you. If you get a thousand people in Ann Arbor and Detroit to write in, that's that's the grease. That's the the, the they're like the quit stop sending me letters. Wheel. We'll give it to you exactly. <laughs> Free the corn. Free the corn. Yeah. So we are. I really want to get your perspective on this as as a lawyer because when I looked at, at the Granholm and that was a big proponent of the Tennessee Wine and Spirits case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And I remember back in, I think it was 2019 when that went to the Supreme Court and did all that sort of thing. I looked at this and I said, this is it. This is commerce clause that's going to break down interstate commerce. We'll be able to have shipping back and forth between every single state. Retailers can ship back and forth. There's going to be there's gonna be competition between a retailer in Florida, between a retailer in Wisconsin. And the consumer is going to have a lot of basically everything at their fingertips, but that hasn't really happened. It's been a very slow drip, especially when you see Michigan doubling down on saying no, no direct consumer shipping. We see some small ones that are, like you said, happening in California, some small ones that happened in Kentucky by opening some direct consumer shipping. But again, back to the kind of reciprocity, am I being overzealous and thinking that this could spin a, a whirlwind of change really quick? Or is this something that it's just going to take years, if not a decade, to kind of fizzle. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, it is probably that latter case, that it is going to take time. We had the 2005 Granholm case, which it did specifically say wine. It was drilling specifically with the wine industry. Put on my lawyer hat. I think that the, the principles espoused in that of anti-discrimination really should apply broadly to at least the producer tier. So all producers broadly should not be able to be discriminated against when it comes to direct consumer shipping. The concern there is that basically, especially for, for spirits, states just, they avoid the, the discrimination in question by not allowing local direct consumer shipping is, you know, if you're in, if you're in Tennessee, if you're a, a distiller in Tennessee, you cannot put your, your product into a box and have it shipped to Chattanooga. And so therefore, there's no discrimination against the Kentucky distillery either. And so that's was really the case where we saw with wine as well in 2005 is a bunch of states just said, well, fine, we're not going to allow any direct consumer shipping at all. And then it took another 10, 15 years of lobbying to expand that and create these new rules for direct consumer shipping of wine that we see. And, and, and so I think that's really the case where we are with, with spirits. I don't think that we need any more specific lawsuits, any, any Supreme Court decisions to say that anti-discrimination provisions, principles apply to distilleries just as they apply to wineries when it comes to direct consumer shipping. But we do need the, the the laws to change just to begin with. We need to go state by state and create that system for direct consumer shipping as is happening in California, as happened in Kentucky. And so that's where it's the unfortunately, yeah, it's going to be 10-ish years at least, depending on how forceful our lobbying efforts can be. But then you, you bring up the case of the Tennessee Wine and Spirits, which was a much more focused decision, much more focused case. It was really focusing directly on retailers. And 
Specifically, it was, does your ownership group need to reside entirely within a state in order for you to have a, a retail license? In that specific case, Total Wine wanted to move into Kentucky to, to open a store there, but they are a national company with owners all over the world, so they couldn't. And and that was, I think, very fairly and very easily decided to say, no, this is ridiculous. You can have local control, local mannership, but you don't need to have everybody live in Tennessee. And it was really seen as, as hopefully this means that we're extending that Granholm decision, anti-discrimination against out-of-state interests, to the retailer tier. And therefore, we can move forward and expand retailer direct-to-consumer shipping, which is it's a similar but different kettle of fish than, than producer direct-to-consumer shipping. And unfortunately, we have not seen that. And I think that there were a couple cases, Michigan, you keep bringing up, was supposed to be the real, this is where we're going to take Tennessee Wine and Spirits, apply it to Granholm, and move forward with that if you're going to allow retailers to do direct consumer shipping, this use a carrier to fulfill an order, you have to allow retailers across the country to do that as well. And for various reasons, the courts have not ruled that way. They've said that... You know, Tennessee wine and spirits, if they're even looking at that, that ruling applies to a very specific condition, very specific license type. And there are all these differences between a Florida retailer and a Michigan retailer or a Florida retailer and a Missouri retailer. And therefore, we can still discriminate against those out-of-state interests. And so far, the Supreme Court has not had interest in taking that up and making a ruling one way or the other. Frankly, I think they're a little bit they're leery to uh, change the alcohol regulations so broadly, so quickly. In Tennessee Wine and Spirits, I think Justice Gorsuch said something along the lines of, we do not want to create the Amazon of alcohol, which is, again, everybody's fear that you know there's just going to be one giant retailer in Florida selling to everybody in the United States. And you know, again, selling methylated products and not paying taxes and selling to minors. Mm -hmm. and, and so again, we need to just, you know, combat those concerns that that's not really what's going to happen. And, and you know, recognize that there are businesses in every industry that are managing various state laws, national rules, national considerations. And so there's not really any reason to necessarily say that alcohol is any more concerning when it comes to these national markets than any other industry. It's just a matter, again, of establishing clear rules that can be followed, that people can abide by, and moving forward with that. And so I guess it's a very long-winded question and kind of getting away from the specifics of, of what happened in those court cases. But it's it's really is we're in a very up in the air moment here. And I think that there is a clear way forward for the spirits industry, for producers, uh, distillers to move forward, take grant home, expand the laws, pass legislation, even if it does take a decade to do that, which is a little bit different than how we are with, with retailers, where frankly, that, that probably does need to come down to the Supreme Court again and get them to clearly say, no, Granholm applies to all tiers of the industry. Retailers can have this national market as well, you know, again, within the the various laws of the individual states that are being shipped into. And, and, and again, it's going to have to come down to the individual laws of the states as long as the 21st Amendment isn't a force. So you mentioned Amazon. Really, it's it's like everybody's worried about some liquor store in Florida becoming the Amazon. No, it actually would be Amazon becoming the liquor <laughs> of Amazon. Like if that ever opened up, like that would potentially be the, I wouldn't say, uh, it'd be the, probably the worry thing uh, that retailers would have to try to figure out. But that just goes back into everything else that Amazon has disrupted. Like you have to disrupt yourself and make sure that you're constantly evolving and figuring out what business model is going to work for you because status quo is not going to be like that forever. And and if Amazon's going to come in, you see Target, how they adapted and how they were able to thrive. Kmart, not so much. And you're, you just have to have the business model that that figures out a way that can combat that and can survive through something that's, that's disruptive like to that point. Yeah, exactly. And I think if that's kind of a huge point of this, this whole current statutes and current law is how ineffective the laws are to manage those expectations that consumers have you know they're going to go online and try to buy bourbon from from wherever they can anyway maybe that's as, as even if they realize that there is a rule prohibiting them from necessarily getting direct consumer shipping to their home if they know about it they are probably just going to be all right with 
breaking a rule that they don't think is legitimate to begin with. And so as if the rules are set up to make this a legitimate industry, to uh, establish a healthy and safe market where people are paying taxes, are checking IDs, I think that's the better way forward and not trying to just brush it all under the rug and say it doesn't happen. Interesting, when we were talking about Amazon, honestly, I think that that's one of the big reasons they bought Whole Foods was that they could have a bunch of liquor licenses, liquor stores all across the country and do then local deliveries of, of alcohol sales. And of course, you know, if, if the laws do change, I'm sure they would jump on it and try to add that as a new product line in their, in their service. But it's they're, they're interesting in how they try to skirt this and, and, and manage it over the years. Can we just walk before we crawl and, you know, just like start with, you know, distilleries and items that are not distributed in certain states like that can only be allowed for, you know, direct to consumers, similar to how wine kind of started. I guess, how is this being presented to these states? Like it, we're trying to do it widespread or we just really want to get, you know, the, you know, specific distilleries or breweries or wineries to, you know, just to be able to, to do it in-house instead of doing it through a retail across, you know, selling from retail to retail in different states. Alex made his point at the very beginning. It's not like Jack Daniels is going to start right, a, sure. a direct to consumer business. But, I mean, it just doesn't could, make sense. But they could do, you know, like limited releases or something, you know, say they have a 10 year, you know, they only have a thousand bottles of they want to do online only. But yeah, I mean, they don't want to get into trying to distribute in every 50 states. It'd be a nightmare for them, you know. But I guess how's this being presented to them? You know, is there like tier, like let's start here and work our way up to there or? There, there is a lot of focus on, on again, producers. That's where the California bill is. It would just allow direct consumer shipping by those producer tiers. So in California, it would be both breweries and distilleries, but it would not be retailers. Retailers could not ship into California under that bill. And so I think there is a lot of this, you know, let's start out with the small producers who can't distribute, get them to to have this, this permission first. And move forward with it. There are a couple states when it comes to wine shipping that do restrict. They say the only products that can be shipped are ones that are not distributed in the state. Louisiana has a rule like that. Indiana has a rule like that. I'm not in favor of those rules, basically because they're they're very complicated. And frankly, I don't think that they are that necessary. Because again, if it's uh, when we're looking at the wine industry and, and what is shipped direct consumer shipping, it is really very select products. They are the average bottle price for a direct consumer ship bottle of wine is $40 compared to $11 for one sold in a, in a retail store. And direct consumer shipping is uh, right around 10%, 10-15% of the total off-premises market. So this really is still a, a very niche market. And I think that that would be this case for, for spirits as well. It's not Jack Daniels. It's the small boutique distillery that you know I read about in a magazine. And I desperately went to 10 stores closest to me and tried to get them to do a special order. And none of them can fulfill it. And I just need to have access to this somehow. That's really the market where I think that we would see success in direct consumer shipping for, for spirits. Uh, and, and so I think to your, your, your point, there are some ways to restrict it, to maybe mollify the distributors and, and state legislatures a little bit to say that we're not going to supplant the three-tier system. I just don't know how really necessary those rules are. And when you have an unnecessary rule in place, it's just a barrier then that you have to constantly check against as opposed to just opening it up and letting the market dictate itself. Yeah, I love your your idea there because it's it's not that the three-tier system the distributors don't play an important role. They're definitely it's an important role. It's just the law that it's just the law that says that you have to sell through them to be able to sell your product that basically stifles your ability to expand and grow as well because that's 25% on a margin that you're not getting anymore that you have to sell to somebody else. And sometimes even if, most people in Kentucky may not have noticed this at, at least I think the laws changed recently, but beforehand to even sell anything at your gift shop, that technically had to come from a distributor. They didn't actually have to leave, but it was a transfer of paper and they still got paid on it no matter what. So it's just one of those rules that it's just, it's not, it doesn't really benefit a lot of people when it comes down to it. You know, one of the things that I, I kind of want to talk to you about as well, as we kind of start wrapping this up to is talking about the, the treasury did their latest 
findings that came from a Biden administration. But I think there was one thing that was really important that they started to leverage. And they talked about DTC and they talked about some people need to start looking at this. But I want to get your thoughts on the idea of the United States Postal Service and them being able to ship because I see that it happening. Okay, now we're taking it to a federal level. Like this isn't this is a national level. This isn't a by state basis. And so, if you can make change at a federal level here, then that could be something that could be a catalyst for change throughout the whole nation. Yeah, yeah, potentially. I, I was really heartened to read that Treasury report and how positive they were about direct consumer shipping, how much they wanted to expand it. But I think that we really need to. You know, look at the results of that report and how much they were saying that it's up to the states to decide that. And again, this comes down to the 21st Amendment, which very clearly says that the rules about distributing, selling, producing alcohol into an individual state is up to that individual state. And, and so I think that it would be extremely unlikely, frankly, without constitutional reform, for the federal government to come down and say there is national direct consumer shipping of alcohol, it just really you know I, I, there's I don't sure how that would would move forward, and I'm sure that Utah Mississippi would come down and and have a pretty good case as to why that you know a rule that passed through Congress would not be effective within their state borders. I'm curious why. Well, it's probably similar to like the vaccine mandate or you know. It's, it's even more straightforward than that because the 21st Amendment specifically says it's up to the states to create their alcohol markets. I mean, Mississippi was a dry state until 1965 because basically they wanted to and no other state could force them to open up their market at all because of the 21st Amendment. It has a lot of force behind it. So when we're looking at a case like Granholm or, or Tennessee Wine and Spirits, it really does come down to different parts of the Constitution arguing against each other. Is you have the Commerce Clause, I think we've brought up a couple times, which basically says that it's up to Congress, the National Congress, to create national markets and dictate interstate businesses. That's up against the 21st Amendment, which says, no, if it's alcohol, then it's up to each individual state to do this on their own and to create their own rules. And if you want to interact in that market, you have to abide by Utah's rules versus Colorado's rules versus Kansas's rules. And so that's why I think it'd be very unlikely to create a national direct-to-consumer shipping law that says everybody everywhere can get it from anywhere. Again, we really have to go by state by state, which really kind of then butts up against the prospect of the U.S. Postal Service getting into there. One, I'm all in favor of that. I think it'd be perhaps beneficial to the Postal Service, although it's is frankly expensive to get the climate-controlled cars and trucks and everything needed to keep alcohol safe as it's transported across the country. And frankly, there's a lot of it'd be you know Federalist Supreme Court rules on how can Utah sue the U.S. Postal Service if the U.S. Postal Service happens to deliver a, a bottle of bourbon to somebody in Salt Lake City. What is the conflict there between state and federal agencies? Again, because the 21st Amendment exists, Utah has a lot of power to say that we do not want anybody taking a brown box and, and putting bourbon in there and shipping it to our residents. So it, it, it'd be an interesting conflict between, again, different layers of the government, different you know, state versus federal agencies. And so you know, I think it, it'd be interesting. I'm in favor of it. I hope that it passes going forward, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And you know, again, unfortunately, I want to throw a little cold water on there on the idea that Congress will save us and will pass a national direct consumer shipping law, or that the TTB will come in there and say, no, we think that this should be a you know, federal rule. It really does come down to individual state by state. And, and so this really then comes down to consumers, again, going to their local legislatures and demanding change. So I, I really urge everybody listening that if you want to have access to more bourbon, to more shipments, understand the rules of where you live, and then contact your local legislator and say that we need these rules to change. It's the very thing that makes this country so great. You know, like moving slow, slow changes, letting states and local, you know, authorities decide what's best for their situation. It's so it was what's so great about this country. But in this case, you kind of want just like that tyrannical <laughs> power to be like, nope, broadly, you know, rule for all. But uh, 
it's not going to happen because like you said, it's unconstitutional. So yeah, we got to get out there and raise some hell with our, our local politicians. <laughs> Talk yeah. to your local senators. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Alex, that was a great way to kind of finish this up and, and making sure that you put a call to action for our listeners and people out there that want to spark change in their their local governments and they want to see change happen. It's up to you to do that. So to kind of close this out, let people know about where they can read more about what you're writing, how they can find out what you're blogging about, everything like that. And if they want to get in contact with you, how would they do that too? Yeah, absolutely. So please go to our, our website at sovos.com slash ship compliance. That's S-O-V-O-S as in Valentine. We have a, a lot of free public resources out there. We have a resource where we go state by state and say what are the rules for direct consumer shipping. We have a, a free public report on winery direct consumer shipping. You can see how, again, valuable that market is, what we might be able to expect from spirits as well. I regularly blog on there about updates, about these uh, complex rules on there. And of course, if you're a distiller, then please uh, check us out too and see how we might be able to help you expand your market, not just direct to consumer shipping, but but all your interstate distributions as well. Is, is We want to be here to help educate the market, educate consumers, and, and just make this a much more viable option for everybody. Fantastic. So we don't blog, but make sure you go and follow his blog. I do, re- I do read everything that comes out of there that ends up either in Mark Brown's newsletter or ends up on Park Street's newsletter, something like that. So I remember the first time I read something, I go, this guy knows what he's talking about. We need to get him on the show. <laughs> well, it's, it's finally worked out. Go yeah, there we go. We made it happen. We made it happen. But make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your socials and make sure you share this podcast with a friend. And if you really like it, go ahead and leave us a review. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week.